Welcome to Check the Program, a podcast by four sometimes journalists who saw a desperate need for arts coverage and decided to do something about it. I'm John Threlfall. I'm Sarah Petrescu. I'm Amanda farrell And I'm Melanie Trump-Hoover. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about some shows that we've seen recently, including Trojan Women at the Phoenix, 77 from Theatre Scam, Frozen in Time, and Pacific Opera Victoria's newest show up, La Traviata. And then we've got an interview with Erin Kelly from Uvic talking about fallen women in the arts. And then we'll spend a bit of time about what's coming up in the next few weeks. So before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge that Victoria occupies the traditional territories of the Lekwungen-speaking and Coast Salish peoples, including what is now known as the Esquimalt and Songhees First Nations. As settler people, we have the privilege to live, work, and create on these lands, and much of the art we're discussing has also been created and performed here. All right, so first up, Trojan Women up at the Phoenix. Trojan, yeah, Trojan, Trojan Women, which I went to on Valentine's Day, which is, I gotta say, is not a Valentine's <laughs> Day show at all. Uh, this is high tragedy of the, the highest level. Trojan Women, if you don't know, it's 2,500 years old now, written by Euripides. Uh, basically, after the war between the Greeks and the Trojans is over, uh, the women of Troy wait to discover what their fates will be by the triumphant Greeks. Are they going to be slaves? Are they going to be executed? Uh, what's going to happen with them at the top of the show? Uh, Poseidon and Athena come out on, this, on stage and they, they curse the Greeks and they basically tell the audience that uh, nobody's going to survive the trip home and it's going to take them you know, a decade to get home. So it's not a happy story at all and it just goes downhill from there. It sounds like my worst Valentine's Day was getting stood up to see Requiem for a Dream at Cinecento. Oh no! It's up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Anyway. So, 2,500 year old story. Uh, It still resonates today, which is, I think, the ultimate tragedy of it all. Uh, They've set this production in a non-period specific um, set. It's uh, it could be any war, any time. Sort of. Uh, the sound design suggests a contemporary era with things like jet planes going overhead. Uh, and then the set is definitely uh, has uh, modern aspects to it, like uh, fuel jerry cans and uh, rebar and plastic tarps and things like that. So there's the insinuation that it is somewhat contemporary, but then the script itself still uses things like setting sails and putting your oars in the water and bringing out a, a classical uh, you know, Trojan shield kind of a thing. So it's a bit of a mashup all the way around. It's, there's a lot going on in this show and it has a lot to offer um, it's very much a student production there's 27 students involved in this production between the cast and the crew and the designers and I gotta say it's also great to see such a large female cast on stage most of the cast is women Matthew Wilkerson's set is very good uh, if somewhat underutilized it's a beautiful looking bombed out set uh, it's a two story set they really only use the second story for about 30 seconds or a minute of the entire play which mm. I thought was a real uh, a waste of a set. There's even part of the show where uh, the lead character uh, Hecuba's grandson is going to be thrown off the tallest tower in Troy and this little baby is going to be literally, literally like a little baby is going to be killed and it does get killed. But it happens well, off stage. Spoiler alert. Spoiler. Uh-huh. <laughs> no Trojans survive. Uh-huh. Uh, but it happens off stage. And it made me wonder, well, you've got the second story mm-hmm. where you could dramatically take someone up there and see them throw the baby off, which would be Maybe that would have just shocking. been too much. No, yeah. but I think it would be <laughs> Valentine's Day, it may have been too much. I think it would be very powerful, too. Like, yeah, because true. it happens off stage, I get it. But it's not as powerful as it possibly yes. could be. So things like that just did kind of bug me. A good movement direction by Trina. 
Christina Stubel. Uh, she had uh, the great chorus on stage, of course, uh, speaking in one voice and moving together in the crowd. They worked very effectively. Director Jan Wood is clearly searching for the core strength that drives us on, despite the loss of everything and everyone we hold de dear. Uh, as one character says, life means hope, death means nothing at all. So I think that's the takeaway from this show, is that uh, rather than just succumbing to death, we should keep struggling forward as much as we possibly can. Um, it was an interesting parallel to see this uh, just on the heels of seeing um, CCPA's production of the Penelope ad in December. They're an interesting pair put side by side. Uh, Penelope ad, of course, had a very contemporary script by Margaret Atwood. Uh, Trojan Women is a very ancient script uh, by um, Euripides, translated by Alan Shapiro. Um, but very interesting how they're both presented. I would say Trojan Women is presented very traditionally, whereas Penelope Ad was trying to do something very different with the direction, mm. much more dynamic, more athletic all the way around. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for a weeper, if you're looking for a high tragedy, Trojan Women runs mm. till February 23rd at the Phoenix. Thanks, John. I, I had a very different Valentine's Day. <laughs> <laughs> I went to 77. Oh, to yeah, Theater's you would Games have. New show. Um, and it's a real tight one act, no, nothing epic, no babies being killed kind of situation. Um, but interesting, also drawing in ancient Greek traditions. Because it's uh, Charles Tiddler is basing it on the idea of the Cledon, which is the uh, an ancient Greek prophecy system where people would go to see a prophet and they'd cover their ears and they'd speak their question out loud and then they would enter the marketplace to try and hear the answer. Oh. So that was the tradition he was working on. So I thought it was kind of an interesting parallel. Totally is. Yeah. yeah. I did not know that context. And yeah. that is because that is exactly what it is. It's 77 little micro dramas based on on real things overheard in Victoria Squares and markets and mm -hmm. streets. And the sound design's really great at situating the, the way you're seated as an audience. There's only about 35 people maybe that can fit in and seated in a square around the perimeter of this room. And the ensemble, uh, nine-person ensemble, is entering and exiting constantly in these little... And when I mean micro, I mean sometimes it's a 15-second exchange, two words. And just in the way of when you're overhearing these things in public spaces, some are like kind of shocking non sequiturs and some are little pieces of scandal and some you think are leading to something and just fall off and are nothing and and did it it did such a beautiful way beautiful job of weaving in some kind of like really poignant pieces and and incredibly um vulnerable moments with little bits of humor and then just the most tedious nothingness in in a in a really kind of beautiful magical way that i enjoyed yeah and I thought the cast, the ensemble in particular, was Oof, so, so, so strong. Carrie Wass was amazing. Carrie Wass was great. Yeah. He was very good. I thought Grace Lee was really excellent as yeah. well. Uh, David Radford's really great yes. in almost everything he does, but he was particularly effective here. Catherine Popham Catherine stole Popham. every scene no she was in. kidding. No kidding. Whether yeah. she was a goofy tourist or you know an aggravated mother or yeah. whatever it may be, I thought they all worked so well together. And the show I saw, her son Julian was in the audience, oh. and he was just dying. Like, it actually elevated it for everything that Catherine was stealing was his, like, shock and awe at seeing his mom, <laughs> which was really sweet. Uh, Aiden Dunsmuir's uh, sound design was fantastic. Yes. I, th I thought it did as much to set the story in Victoria as did the costumes or the dialogue we were yeah. hearing, because there was all these snippets of things that if you know Victoria, you know the sounds you're hearing, and it was so effective. Yeah. Yeah. Really well done and quick. I think it was exactly the right um, length and tone, like the direction from Pamela Bethel yeah. um, was was tight and kept it moving really quickly um, in a way that it didn't like the kind of novelty of the setup didn't 
didn't wear it all yeah. for that reason. I live by, by keeping it moving as quickly as it was. I was really excited to see Pam taking on a show of this size with a nine-person cast. Mostly we've seen her do solo shows or two-character shows, uh, having this large cast and especially such a dynamic flow of characters in and out and keeping track of all that and, and really making them flow together nicely. I thought she did a great job with it. Really mm -hmm. lively, really, like you said, sense of humor, but also a sense of tragedy at times mm -hmm. too. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was fascinating how your mind, I don't know if this worked for you, but uh, how your mind sort of constructed more of the narrative around these 15, yes. 30 second things. You see this quick scene and then your head starts filling it all in, but then they're gone. Did you have time to like really process that though? Like Sometimes you yeah. did. Sometimes you're talking about Kerry Wallace. So the one where he was, uh, you know, obviously supposed to be a street person of some kind where he's facing off with the police officer. Yeah. And there was hardly any talking in that. Like there's maybe 15 words. And yet you got a whole scene. You can yeah. almost have built a whole character out of just that little moment. And part of that, again, from living and breathing and working in Victoria yeah. and having, you know, the, anything, everything in it is a little bit familiar for that reason. Mm. And I think that's what helped paint yeah, that extra. I wonder how it would feel if someone not from Victoria saw it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it would work as an anywhere kind of a show um, other than, you know, knowing the city, the sound design, you know, cars mm -hmm. and uh, the little beepy crosswalk mm -hmm. things and seagulls and stuff like that. It could, probably could apply almost anywhere. Mm -hmm. And certainly the characters we were seeing were generic enough that I think mm -hmm. they could apply to almost any, you know, club girls going out and they're drunk or mm -hmm. arguing mm -hmm. people or overheard cell phone conversations or the dudes in the steam bath. That yeah. was just crazy, that yeah. old one. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I would encourage any anyone to go see it's such a short show mm -hmm. um just squeeze it into your schedule because it's so good and it's nice seeing charles tiddler back on the stage yeah. you know it's not on the stage but giving us a new script well and even the whole setup so as you're waiting to go in uh monkey see interactive which is scott amos and david parfit i think mm -hmm. have put together all of these interactive like the registroid i think it's yeah. called mm -hmm. where you are having it's creating an uh environment where you can interact with strangers and kind of create your own little mini moments before you go into the set it sets context really it's just a cool interactive experience to have from start to finish and what about the space so this is a new satellite yeah, space. interesting so it's the old prices alarm space oh i was Fort wondering Street. where it was i wonder if it was i wondered if it was the old heart space gallery but i looked at the address and it wasn't yeah, the yeah, same yeah. one so it was prices alarms and then it was the b brothers b the the uh, weed dispensary, dispensary. <laughs> but it's like the beardy guys yeah weed dispensary but it was really interesting to go in because from the street you think it's a storefront mm -hmm. but it goes all the way back to the loading base so it's yeah. actually a really big mm -hmm. space so it's like a room and a room and a room and a room and a hallway and then the playing space so it's it's again it's kind of worth going in just to be able to mm -hmm. see the space and they've decked it out really nicely they have, yeah. uh they've got sort of a little standing area where you go before you go into the show and they've done this nice uh flow of almost like cotton batten on the ceiling that sort of directs you along with lights underneath it mm -hmm. and uh, some Scott and David's work I hadn't seen before registered I'd played with lots of times but he had, they had some other pieces I'd never seen mm -hmm. before so that was super fun and then yeah the intimacy of the play space that this this uh, the staging happens right in front of you with two banks of uh, seats on either side and you're really right in the middle of the action and they're entering and exiting everywhere mm -hmm. around you it's uh, it's a pretty great example of how you can take a vacant, vacant space in the city and make it work for you mm -hmm. so yeah kudos to uh, whoever scams working with with that space cool yeah how long is it running 77 runs to february 24th at scam satellite studio which is 849 fort street great cool and your valentine's day sarah <laughs> 
my Valentine's Day, I saw uh, La Traviata, Pacific Opera Victoria's La Traviata, Verdi's uh, famous opera, probably one of the most performed, most recognizable operas. It's just musically, it's just beautiful. It's all sung in Italian. It's um, one of the best things about it, I find, is that the orchestration doesn't compete with the singing. Mm. They really play off each other, so you get these beautiful arias with these great lines, and then you'll, you know, sort of get punctuation by the strings. So, so there's that level of it. And, um, and then the story um, is um, about, it's based on a true, um, true story uh, from a novel by Alexandra Dumas, Fee, who is the son of Alexandra Dumas, um, who wrote Three Musketeers. Sure. And he had based the main character, Violetta, on um, a courtesan lover that he had, who was quite popular, very smart woman, um, Marie Duplessis. She uh, died tragically at age 23 from TB, but it has this very rich, influential life, and her story was quite compelling to him and also to uh, to Verdi as well. So, and we'll talk about that in a little bit because I, I did a great interview with Erin Kelly from UVic who, who has some interesting things to say about that. But Pacific Opera Victoria's staging of the show was incredible. It was set as a 1920s party. Like Again, I always love the fashion in shows. <laughs> this one was one of the, the best. It's just the incredible sort of Gatsby-esque dresses. Um, it was just stunning. Yeah, it was unbelievable. The set and costumes by Christina Padubiuk. Um, sorry if I pronounced that wrong. It was unbelievable. They had this huge second level mezzanine with this big grand staircase coming down and floor to ceiling French windows backlit. Mm -hmm. So it was just yeah, a stunning set. And then um, some of the best pieces were the uh, course numbers. And it's the Pacific Opera Victoria Chorus, who they're in all the shows, and you're sort of getting to know people's faces and stuff <laughs> now, too. So it's kind of fun to see see people in different roles. But yeah, an incredible opera. Um, Valentine's Day, it was jam-packed, even with the snow. I was a bit shocked at how many people were there. Like, everyone came out for it. I took my husband. He loved it. It was his first opera. He'd oh, never been. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah, so that was really fun. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, with that, it, there's some interesting themes to how Violetta is treated in, in the play and that probably parallel a lot of how women courtesans or even, you know, sex workers. Um, a courtesan is not quite a sex worker. It could be a companion, an entertainer but uh, are treated in, in the arts and in plays. I think I'll, I'll uh, set that up a little bit to have Erin uh, Kelly, a professor at the University of Victoria in the English department, talk a little bit about the history of the fallen woman in, uh, in literature and arts. In the Western tradition, uh, we can look all the way back into the classical period for two types of stories or two types of female characters, at least, who get wrapped up in stories. And often this gets talked about is the virgin horror dichotomy. So you either have 
you know, nice women, good women, and part of what makes someone a nice woman, a good woman, a respectable woman is chastity, virginity, uh, sexual purity, as opposed to the fallen woman, the woman who has had some kind of illicit sexual experience and therefore is somehow ruined. It obviously gets a lot more complicated than that, and there's, there's a lot more options. Uh, but I think that when we look at an opera like Traviata, it is emerging out of a set of stories about fallen women. It's interesting that within the classical period, within, say, even biblical literature, um, and up through the Middle Ages, that for the stories about fallen women, there are possible redemption arcs, there are possible redemption narratives. And the most obvious one in, say, the Western Christian tradition would be the Mary Magdalene story. Aaron talked about the Mary Magdalene story of, of being sort of the arc of the fallen woman being, rede being redeemed, <laughs> and, um, and how that can only be done through spirituality mm. and through um, sort of seeking forgiveness and, and going on to have sort of a chaste, pure life. Fallen women are not going to be, they're not marriageable material. So, so that was kind of interesting about, you know, you can be redeemed spiritually, but not um, socially. So you're tainted for marriage, which you, you really see in Traviata. Um, and she talks a little bit more about what do you do? What do you do with the fallen woman? Having her die is a kind of nice way to solve the problem. And so there are lots and lots and lots of these stories, um, particularly in 19th century literature, uh, drama, novels, short stories, of these fallen women who then, you know, their redemption is in part capped off with the fact that they're dead. Um, because there really isn't necessarily an obvious path for what to do with them. Yeah, it's like they're treated like just objects, you know, like they're not useful anymore. So the person writing the story just discards them. You know, that's interesting. Yeah, it's such an easy out. Yeah, it's an easy out. And, you know, when you look in the context of the time, maybe it's even very controversial to have those characters and to have some sort of honest redemption is like too much, right? But there's such influential stories, like Traviata is such an influential story. Um, and it was interesting talking about it a little bit more if it's given, you know, given a bit of a deeper treatment, which I think it really was, setting it in the 20s. And, um, and the casting was done very well. I, I'm a big fan of age-appropriate casting. And this was done, I feel like the casting was great on this for, um, for the leads, uh, namely Lucia Cesaroni as an excellent Violetta Valerie. She's a beautiful singer and just had a lot of depth in her acting as well. Um, so Aaron talked again about how on another level, uh, Traviata exposes social issues at the time for women um, and how courtesans, um, on one hand, held held power in society and had more freedom than other women, at least sort of during their kind of heyday. Part of what we're seeing, among other things with Violetta, is that yes, she's a sex worker, but she's a particular kind of sex worker. She actually is called a courtesan. Uh, the language used around her is courtesan. And, and, and courtesans have a really interesting history. I mean, that, that term, the reason the word court is in there is that it originally is a term for someone who's just a court favorite. And it very rap 
relatively rapidly by the 16th century is shifting to the idea that it's basically the king's mistress. It's the mistresses of powerful men at court. And so these are often women who are themselves highly educated, themselves from uh, powerful backgrounds in many cases, and who are affecting uh, what's happening at the highest level of power. Um, it also turns into a tradition where the courtesan, courtesan is a term that gets used for um, women who, one of their appeals may be sexual favors, but often part of what is also bringing clients to them is that they're known for extremely witty conversation. Mm. They're known for being extremely learned. Many of them are very talented musicians, singers, mm. composers, poets. And so um, in many cases, uh, and, and this is particularly in the Venetian tradition, uh, the courtesan also uh, may have, say, one person who's a lover, who's a primary benefactor, but then is throwing public events, is essentially sort of a hostess throwing parties and is making, um, is, is benefiting from having lots of people come and enjoy other kinds of entertainment that she can provide. Interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And, um, you know, there's one more, one more sort of level of subtext to this that I didn't, uh, hadn't thought, thought about it, didn't know about. And, uh, Aaron brought it up is that, um, all of the men, the artists in, involved in creating this story were all um, illegitimate children. Hmm. So talking about women in these situations, right, creating art about them in a way sort of brought up that theme and, and that story of women who um, are unmarriageable. And, um, and it was quite a big deal at the time because if you were... In, a, you know, illegitimate uh, child, you didn't have land rights, um, it was very, very difficult. So, yeah, so I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and she just has, has a little bit uh, more to say about that. So Alexandre Dumas himself is illegitimate. Alexandre Dumas Phil, his son, is also illegitimate and is then acknowledged by his father. Alexandre Dumas Phil becomes the lover of the woman who is this famous French courtesan who he then bases his novel Camille upon. And then that's what the opera is based upon. Alexandre Dumas Phil particularly was actively involved in trying to figure out the rights of illegitimate children. Because part of what happens is you have men, sometimes very powerful, very wealthy men, who have mistresses, who have courtesans, who have relationships with fallen women, simply because they're women, not their wives. Children born out of wedlock have no rights. Basically, it's entirely up to the father and up to the whim of the father whether or not they get acknowledged as, as offspring and what they get. And even in the case of uh, both... Alexandre Dumas, Alexandre Dumas Jr. is what we'd say in English, the, the son, being recognized by their fathers means being taken completely away from their mothers. They never see their mothers again. The mothers get nothing. Um, they're not acknowledged. And so I do think that part of what we can see is these male writers who then are become interested in the problems, the plights that these situations are creating. They are, along the way, one of the things they're interested in is the fallen woman. Very interesting subtext to the show. Um, an incredible opera to see whether you 
love opera or you have no idea if you like opera or maybe you didn't like the last opera you <laughs> saw, I think that the music and the storyline and the presentation is, is great, so anyone would enjoy it. Does it uh, benefit from being updated to the Jazz Age? Does that bring something to the story that uh, it wouldn't have otherwise? It does. I feel like if it was set... Yeah, if it's set in the 19th century or any other era, it might be kitschy. Hmm. But because that jazz age is sort of, the 20s kind of has that, I feel like that's when women were becoming a little bit more independent. So it plays really nicely, that sort of potential of this heroine to have this great life, parties, be an entertainer, and then sort of want to have marriage and want to fall in love but be faced with the fact that, oh no, you're not, you're going to taint our family hmm. because you've been this woman. And sort of the unfairness of that, which I think in, in any other era, or earlier or later, that dynamic might not even be there. Hmm. So, yeah, great. Yeah, that's good. And when's it on till? Sunday, February 24th. Yeah, excellent. So Pacific Opera Victoria. Great. Great. Thanks, Thank Sarah. You. So you also saw something else at the Royal McPherson Theater? Yeah, I saw a show at the McPherson Theater, um, and I almost loathe to mention it because <laughs> it was so bad. <laughs> so it's called Frozen in Time, a, uh, a musical for kids. I took my three-year-old daughter and uh, husband and mom as a sort of fun outing, and um I, there was very little advertising. I don't know who the company was. There wasn't a program. There wasn't a poster. It was essentially two and a half actors, because one appeared halfway in, who were kind of doing a karaoke version of uh, the musical Frozen. <laughs> and it just felt like tickets were 30 bucks. It was jam-packed. You know, $30, okay, that's not a, not a lot. But when you're taking kids, multiple kids, yeah, it adds up for a family. Maybe that's the only play some families see in Victoria. Mm-hmm. And it was just really poorly done. The costumes were terrible. There's no real storyline. They just sort of cribbed from the movie. There some good voices, but off, like flat and, you know, out of tune. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, this isn't great. You know, my daughter loved the Atomic Vaudeville pantomime a thousand times better. <laughs> she liked the she liked the Victoria Symphony's superheroes kids show way better. And, and so... I only mention this show in the context of there's this sort of issue going on between the uh, Royal McPherson Theatre Society and local artists about the rent uh, costs. And um, and one of the debates is if, you know, people are paying more, um, they could open up more nights to touring companies and touring shows. And, uh, and it's not really, you know, the quality of those shows really matters because if it's going to be kind of garbage like this, taking the place of where local theater, which we have some incredible local theater mm-hmm. companies, and they bring a whole other level of education and um, economy and interaction into our city. So what I'm seeing of these touring shows coming in, it's not that great. I don't know what you guys think, but... It's it's tricky. Like I took my kids when they were younger to a lot of these kind of shows, the Max and Ruby show mm-hmm. and the, the Backyard Again show, and these kind of live kids shows on stage. Um, Glimpse into your future. <laughs> 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 um, but it's uh, but they were well done. So if you're 
paying to go see a show that is uh, subpar. You know, that's that's pretty frustrating. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You want to see you want to see something good. I guess one of the telltale signs is if in nowhere of the promotional materials you see a website or <laughs> <laughs> contact information. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't say who the actors were. I mean, it's a hour and a half show and no one knew who their leads mm. were. And isn't that something that sold out two houses anyways? Like cashing yeah. in on yeah. Disney and the fact that kids are like there's not there's not a lot of opportunities for kids yeah. to experience the arts either, so yeah. There's those uh, local women who are doing the Disney princess shows. There's I can't remember their names right now, but there's uh, there's three of them, and they, they do a little Disney princess show, and I hear it's very good. So, you know, there's a great example of a local mm-hmm. group that could have gotten mm-hmm. up on stage and done that, but mm-hmm. they probably wouldn't have had the bankroll to book them act to, to mm-hmm. go from there. So, yeah. yeah. Huh. Tricky. <laughs> yeah. So you went from the highs to the lows. <laughs> yeah, the high and the low, yeah, this past week, so... Um, so what's coming up later for the rest of the month, I guess, and into early March? Because we won't be getting together again until first week of March, yeah. right? Uh, Last Days of Judas Iscariot is running until March 2nd at Theatre in Con Yes, we meant to go see that, but it was just such a busy weekend. So uh, I had family stuff for Family Day, and you guys were all very busy at the theater. <laughs> Langham Court Theatre's That Elusive Spark. Yeah, I'm really um, looking forward to Janet that. Munsell, directed by... Um, Mercedes Batiste Benet, is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, a lot of great local actors in there. Mm. Our good friend Casey, Cassiani mm. Austin, Trevor Hinton. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he had done that role before, is yeah. that right? Well, twice before. So okay. I'm, I'm super keen on seeing it again because I saw the original production of it, which was a 10-minute version of the script in uh, a long time ago in the 24-hour play project. And then it got mounted up for full production at the Phoenix. And now it's getting a full production again at Langham Court. But yeah, Trevor's being the lead in all three of them. Oh, cool. Yeah. I think I saw the one at the Phoenix. I feel like I remember that show. It was very good. Yeah, Yeah, I really look forward to seeing it. Great chance for Janet Munsell to have her work Mm -hmm. up up on the local Mm -hmm. stage again. It's been a while. Yeah. And a big cast for this Mm -hmm. one, too. So, you know, Mm -hmm. it'll be fascinating to see what they do. Mm -hmm. And it's a great story. February 28th, right? February 28th at Langham Court for that one. I think we're all going, hey? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the night before that, February 27th, uh, the latest Pachacacha night is happening. Uh, as always, a nice lineup of people for that. Monique Celez, dancer, choreographer, is coming in. Uh, Derek Ford, local photographer. Caleb Byers, uh, visual artist. And, and I'll plug my wife, Beth Threlfall, who does the Fernwood Pole Painting Project. Mm. She's going to be one of the speakers as Great. well. What is the theme? Arts? The arts? Or? I think it is, yeah, generally the arts. But Bob McDonald from Quirks and Quarks is also part of it, so I'm not sure how that fits in. <laughs> they don't really have a theme, really. Really, they just kind right. of invite mm-hmm. a few different okay. people. Like the night we did it, it wasn't necessarily... There were quite a few artsy people there, but it was a real range. Yeah, of, okay. totally. Yeah, is. yeah. Uh, Paper Street Theatre is doing an improvised Agatha Christie, uh, March 1st to 3rd, then 8th to the 10th, mm-hmm. at Craig Derrick Castle, yeah, which I think is a perfect setting fun. for something mm-hmm. like that. And I think they've just sold out their run their, for yeah. uh, their improvised West, West Anderson, Anderson this oh, weekend. Great. So if you're interested, that, that is a plan in advance one, I think. Mm-hmm. They typically sell those out. Uh, the U Show, the next U Show is coming up, and Bernice Thomas is doing uh, How to Tame a Dog, March 1st and 2nd at the Intrepid Theatre Club. And on March 2nd at the Metro... Uh, Riot Girls Review Locker Room Talk is coming in, and they're promising a night of patriarchy-smashing, politically-oriented theater. So that'll be fun to see what that's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the visual art, uh, there's this excellent-looking show uh, happening right now at Fortune Gallery on Fisgard in Chinatown, Profiling Black Excellence. 
uh, happening during Black History Month. Um, it's uh, documenting and sharing the experience of racing, racism and racial profiling experienced by people of color in and around Victoria and the Lower Mainland. So there will be a lot of uh, familiar faces in uh, the portraits there, including some folks from the Victoria art scene. Uh, and the photographer is a fellow named Nathan Smith. And uh, that's until February 28th. And I believe there's a meet and greet on the 24th at the gallery. And it just looks like a, you know, something to, I think in Black History Month, we think a lot about the past. Mm -hmm. And I think it's good to really think about the present too, so. Mm -hmm. But you're going to a cool thing for the, mm -hmm. yeah, speaking about of the past. The past. <laughs> um, there's a Ross Bay Cemetery tour on Sunday, uh, February 25th, um, five bucks afternoon event um, that is a tour of all of the um, historical uh, black people that, that pioneers of Victoria that are under-recognized, under-celebrated, mm -hmm. under-talked about always, mm -hmm. and, uh, and a tour of the cemetery in that context, which is a cool way mm -hmm. to cap off awesome. the month for yeah. sure. Nice. Excellent. Mm -hmm. And then the only other thing we'll throw to is um, uh, Sparkfest is coming at the Belfry. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's not till March 8th, but if you want to start looking at the lineup, there's some great shows coming in. And I'm sure tickets for a lot of them will be going quickly. Mike Delmont is doing Mama's Boy. Mm. It'll be great to see that. I haven't seen that one yet. It's a very powerful show. Is it? I saw, I think it was the first time he did it in town at Intrepid in the club. Yeah. I'm sure it's changed a bit since then. But if you're going looking for a laugh riot, that is not what you will mm -hmm. get. It's a very uh, emotional, moving Growing up with a single mom, right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's a, it's about his relationship with his mom. I'll le I'll leave it at that. I don't really mm -hmm. want to say much more about it. He does some singing in it too, or at least he did in the uh, version that I mm -hmm. saw. So, it's excellent show, and it's great to see it uh, at the Belfry. I think that's mm -hmm. that's awesome that it's coming to Spark. Super. Yeah, and the one I'm looking forward to at Spark is uh, Old Stock, a refugee love story. Mm -hmm. which That's going to be great. The latest uh, Hannah Moskovich, Christian Berry mm -hmm. collaboration. Uh, ben Kaplan, a klezmer mm -hmm. musician, mm -hmm. is providing the uh, the music, and he sings. He's part of the big a big part of the show as well. So that's that's the main stage show I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, I love Ben Kaplan. He's great. So and he's doing a night at uh, Capitol Ballroom on his own. Oh, so, uh, right I missed after, him last time he was in town. Yeah, so, so right after uh, the old stock closes on March 24th, I think it's the, the next night or the night after that, he's doing a, a night at the Capitol Ballroom. So. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, good-looking uh, concerts coming up, right? Wolf like, Parade yeah. next Tuesday at yeah. Upstairs. Hometown, it, well... Hometown, especially for me, Daniel Beckner grew up in Lake Couch, and, mm -hmm. like, his dad was my English teacher, his mom was my choreographer, <laughs> his little brother Nick, I worked, like, it's one of those Is he small the most town. famous person out of Lake Couchin? Well, the Cornell brothers have a cabin on the lake, <laughs> and Don Co. Jones has, like, a, a monument built to her coming to town, so it's kind of a three-way tie. <laughs> but, yes, That's Daniel great. Beckner is, is a very big deal there. Yeah. Um, so he, and there's always, whenever I've been to a Wolf Parade show, there's a good, like, couch and hometown crowd out. I've been to one at uh, Lucky Bar. It's getting hilariously heckled from the crowd. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> and they're always fun live. They mm. they had a great set at Riflandia a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I And it's been a long time, actually, since I've seen them in the, a club environment. So that's next Tuesday at Upstairs. Yeah, um, and that's such a great music. spot to see shows. I love that spot mm. for live music. Is that it? I think so. Yeah. Done? Press yeah. done. Oh, my goodness. That was a lot of stuff. Thanks, uh, thanks for listening to all that. And uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Again, if you have any feedback, check the program yyj at gmail.com. Thanks to Aaron Kelly for speaking with us this week. 
And uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Check the program. And until next time, I'm Amanda Farrell-Lowe. I'm John Trofo. I'm Sarah Petrescu. I'm Melanie Trump-Cooper. And don't, don't forget, forget to check, check the, the program. program.